Greetings, everyone who's been watching along. If you've been watching earlier this evening, welcome back. <clears throat> earlier this evening, we were talking about, well, Dan and I were talking about an issue of Calvinism. But now we're doing something entirely different, which is we're discussing origin, the Philocalia. And uh, audience questions are welcome. <clears throat> the motivation for this, of course, as always, is Ken Wilson's book, Augustine's Conversion from Traditional Free Choice to what Dr. Wilson calls non-free free will. The motivating or, or inspiration for this comes from Dr. Wilson's use in this tome of or what's referred to as Origins Philocalia. And I will point out, looking through the ancient Arthur's index, which is helpfully provided. This the index for Origins works extends from pages or from page three sixty three to page three sixty four. So not a long one, but there are four citations to the Philocalia, specifically the sections twenty three. 25 and 27, two different parts of that. And the citation to 27, 10 through 12, is repeated at pages 66 and 19. So at page 19, there's just a mention in a footnote, footnote 57 there. The, the, the text that's written is, it says, thus God may not have controlled or manipulated Pharaoh's heart in our modern sense, but created circumstances to which Pharaoh responded freely by becoming stubborn, the very understanding which rabbis and early Christian authors argued against heretics. And I will just point out, in the footnote there, he has compare Rabbi Yohanan, then uh, Tertullian, and then Origen, two, two books of Origen, his principles, his first principles, and then Philokalia 27, 10 through 12. My speculation, I kind of speculated before that this was a, an odd citation, but my guess, as I, as I kind of hinted at it in the previous episode, is that this is somehow a reused citation. And indeed, he because he only provides two lines of Greek text, but then provides that same 27, 10 through 12 uh, citation, which isn't the probably the best way to cite this. There's a number of reasons it's not the best way to cite this. One of the reasons why it's not the best way to cite this is it's probably better to think about this in terms of this being a fragment of commentary by origin rather than citing to the follow Kala. I <laughs> good luck to me in, in actually saying this. We're, we're gonna jump instead of saying the name here, Philokalia <laughs> again, I'm gonna go ahead and jump into this quotation that I'm offering from Peter C. Butineff's book, Beginnings, Ancient Christian Readings of the Biblical Creation Narratives. Of course, I'm not focused on those creation narratives right now. But as you can see, there's a section in that book. This is the table of contents that includes some discussion of, uh, it's called paradise, whatever they that may mean, the Cappadocians and their origin. Notice that he says uh, origin instead of origin. Not a, exactly a play on words necessarily, but perhaps a little playful nod. There's some discussion of origin earlier in the work. I'm not going to get into that right now. 
But what I am going to do is to explore this point about the Cappadocians and their origin. And I'm doing that by looking at this section. This section is pages 124 to 125 in that work. It says, Enshrining Origin, the Philokalia. And the author here points out that the Philokalia is an anthology of origins texts that was probably compiled by Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus, possibly just Gregory of Nazianzus. And they say they point out that the legacy of origin, or he points out that the legacy of origin for the Cappadocians is complex, but the issue, the selection of texts shows you what mattered to Basil and Nazianzen. And the argument that he makes here is that there's a collection of 27 chapters with titles given by the compilers, i.e. not by origin. And based on the number of pages devoted, what's, what's interesting for these Cappadocians is origin's understanding of scripture. So they, he begins with a section from his On First Principles, a fragment that's cut before he gets to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Because that's not what, uh, although they were Trinitarians, that's not what the Cappadocians were interested in in uh, reviewing Origen's work. This That section is followed by passages from Jeremiah's homilies, uh, meaning the, I mean, I say Jeremiah's hom homilies, the homilies of Origen on Jeremiah, and Psalm commentaries, Leviticus homilies, and so on and so forth. The points that he's re-emphasizing, that, that, that they are re-emphasizing, Gregory and Basil, are that scripture is divinely inspired, and although it contains a scandal, Origen advises the reader to first believe and, sorry, going the wrong way, and find beneath what is counted a stumbling block, much gain in godliness. Referring to the threefold sense of scripture, he exhorts his readers, let's search not for the letter, but for the soul of what we're considering, then if we're able, we'll ascend also to the spirit. So there's a breakdown of what the text is about, but what you can gather from this is that the latter sections of the Philokalia, which as I said, is an anthology of origin texts compiled by later authors, has a specific intent that's uh, brought about by those other authors, namely to focus on the sense of scriptures and dealing with difficult scriptures, scriptures that are that pose some exegetical difficulty. I'm going to stop sharing that for the moment in order to uh, point out this. The translation of the Philokalia that's, uh, that I was using, I think, last time, it's and it, it explains the same thing. It says it's a compilation of selected pa passages from Origen's work made by Saints Gregory and Basil. The wholesale destruction of his writings that followed the warfare waged against his opinions shortly after his death caused a special value to attach to the Philokalia as preserving to us in the original much of Origen's work which would otherwise have been entirely lost or would have survived only in the translations of Rufinus. Moreover, even his great and comparatively popular work against Celsus depends for its text solely on a manuscript of the 13th century. So we have cause for gratitude in the preservation of a large part of it in 
the phylocalia. But aside from the textual importance, the collection also deserves attention as providing an excellent introduction to the study of origin. Now, uh, while I agree with that point, also notice though that the, <laughs> there's some a number of caveats and qualifications that come up. So the preface to the Greek edition, now this is taken from, and I'll come to this again in a little bit, I believe, but this is coming from one branch of the manuscript tradition that preserves the Philokalia. This, the pre, a preface that was attached here says, so then taking all this into account, although we admit the letter to be genuine and have no doubt that the compilation was made by the two saints, meaning Basil and, and Gregory, and give good heed to their orthodox teaching, which shines more brightly than the sun, we shall maintain that they were justified in further inference we drew on our own responsibility. What we mean is this, certain persons, as has been said, mad upon the heterodox views of origin, taking advantage of the Holy Gregory's letter, this is an introductory letter to, that goes with the uh, Philokalia, have undoubtedly had the audacity, undoubtedly, this, this scribe says, had the audacity to pollute the whole of the compilation with profane insertions, apparently supposing that the more simple-minded readers might be found, as Holy Basil somewhere says, mixing the poison with the honey. To prevent this, we have done our best to show readers where the poison is. Accordingly, after giving the most careful attention to the thorough exposition of all the chapters in the following list, and after applying the best tests we could, we have marked the spurious and illegitimate passages in the margin as heretical, faulty, and have thus branded them in their several places. So. What I what I enjoy about this question or about this comment or perhaps about the process described by this comment is it shows a concern by a medieval scribe transmitting this on for uh, some concern that the text has been manipulated by people who are willing to throw in something bad. Now, was the scribe correct? Subsequent scholarship seems to suggest that perhaps the scribe was not correct and that perhaps the philokalia does represent a reasonable uh, a reasonable copy of the underlying text of origin i point this out i'm going to share it back at the screen in just a moment i'm going to try to share it in just a moment see if i can get it so what you can see on the screen here on the right-hand side is the manuscripts of the Philokalia, table one, dated manuscripts are in italics. There's a few speculative manuscripts, manuscripts that don't exist, that they've uh, postulated probably used to exist. There's the Venetian, I think it's Venetian, manuscript 47, uh, some other manuscripts, this Paris manuscript. Um, the next page, you can see more of the tree of manuscripts. So there's a couple of reasons I bring this up. One reason is textual criticism, although we mostly encounter it on this channel when talking about the scriptures, is not some uh, technique that's unique to studying the scriptures. It's a technique that can be used to study other books, and it is used to study other books, and this is an example. And the, uh, the way that this tree is arranged has, they've done, they've done a number of, of analyses of the manuscripts and they've come up with some places where they think that there's some things they say common blunders the, you know to answer this in the affirmative instances must be collected in which these two manuscripts have common blunders which are not found in the latter 
And moreover, our such as an intelligent scribe would not have easily rectified. And they provide some examples that they think serve that purpose. And ultimately, this is the kind of thing that the coherence-based genealogical method aims to emulate or simulate, but it's much, much more complicated in the case of scripture. There are not just a handful or a few dozen manuscripts of scripture that are floating around that can be used to reassemble the text of scripture. There's altogether for the New Testament over 5,000 manuscripts. Not every book has 5,000, of course, but even in the cases where there's fewer than 5,000, there are a lot of manuscripts there to cover. There's a lot of potential interrelationships among the texts. And there's also a likelihood of cross-pollination, not just a single manuscript dependency. So in this case, you can see in the manuscripts of Philokalia, there's manuscripts on the left side, which are seemingly independently maintained from those on the right side, which actually makes these manuscripts on the left side much more interesting for the purpose of identifying what was the original, what's the uh, alpha text or the earliest text they can obtain. This one says the a common, they speculate that there's a common, uh, there's a manuscript delta and the Patmos manuscript that they, those have a common original ancestor gamma and gamma may well have been copied from the original. I think that's the, supposed to be the original. Uh, when it and in any event, there's at least it's an earliest manuscript that they can get back to. Uh, one second, please. Uh, so the point is the uh, sexual criticism is useful. It's useful for understanding the, the original text of origin when it comes to something like this. Although, as we just pointed out, Philokalia as such isn't origins work. That arrangement of, of writings, although they're origins writings, is the work of subsequent authors who had a specific goal in mind in assembling them, which was different from the goal that origin had in writing them. So they should automatically come with some caveats. And when you understand those caveats, it's a little bit, we, we should have some caution about how we use these texts. So there's additionally, the uh, one of the key manuscripts of, uh, or one of the key, as we described before, some of the Contra Selsum are from a single manuscript, co copies of a single manuscript from the 13th century, uh, which also has some other material. And there's a, there's a lot of in, very interesting information in this introduction to the text. There are some discussions on the translations here by Rufinus, because as we said, Philokalia is preserved for us in Greek by Greek speakers in the East and preserved by reputable saints of the church, people who are later recognized as saints, important Christian authors in that side of the church, the Philokalia was preserved in several copies down through the ages and preserved in uh, the original language of Greek, which allows us to evaluate some of the translation work by, by Rufinus. And when it comes to the first principles, the De Principis, we see that 
in general, the uh, you could read these more at your leisure if you'd like, but you can see that there's some smoothing, there's some issues with the translation, and there's uh, he says his translation, however, was assailed by Jerome not only on the ground of suppression of Origen's heretical statements, but also for the unscholarly style of his Latin composition. And uh, Rufinus declares that he had originally refused a request by Macarius to do the work. Uh, now, overall, the author concludes that Rufinus has done a pretty good job of preserving the work. Uh, this first principle works. It says Rufinus has embodied in his translation with slight alterations his previous versions of such passages as are quoted from the book in the Apology of Pamphilus. But it, here's the key part I wanted to bring to your attention. It says, in exegetical works, the favorable estimate of the fidelity of Rufinus to his originals, which we are inclined to form from his translation, the passages of the first principles, which are contained in the Philo, Philo Calia, is seriously modified. When we come to observe the way in which he has dealt with other sections, <clears throat> which are taken from Origen's homilies or commentaries. And there's a few exemplary sections, including, unfortunately, section 25, which is part of these commentaries on the epistle to the Romans, <coughs> as well as uh, section 27. So why bring this up? The main reason I bring this up is to emphasize that when it comes to origin studies, there are a lot of difficulties in sorting out which things are originally written by origin and which things have been manipulated by later authors. Not just because people have raised that issue over the years, but because in a few places we can check the work of people like Rufinus to see how they did and sometimes they seem to do well, and other times not so much. And we explored this a little bit in the last episode. I believe it was the last episode where we kind of show the Latin versus the Greek. And we saw that they're not exactly the same and that the Latin in general was more expansive, longer, and included things that were a gloss on what Origen had written there. When it comes to the exegetical works, that is not the uh, the exact same issues. In fact, in some cases, oh, I, I shouldn't have closed this off, but the very next page says, so in serious indeed were the modifications of Origen's work, which were thus affected, meaning in his uh, work on some of the exegetical works of Origen. So serious indeed were the modifications of Origen's work, which were thus affected that as Rufinus tells us in the same epilogue, certain malevolent minds suggested that he might well, prefix his own name rather than origins to the book. <laughs> and with a touch of satirical humor, he promises that when he completes his proposed version of the recognitio of Clement of Rome, he will call it Rufini Clemens, but uh, meaning Clemens of Rufinus. And uh, the it's he says, looking at the extracts in question, we find that those from the epistle to the Romans are so abbreviated that without the explanation of Rufinus, we could scarcely have believed that they were intended to represent the corresponding sections in the Philokalia at all. And we get no help from them for the criticism of the Greek text. Uh, there's, so there's that problem there. Then when it comes to the homilies on Joshua, 
The author expanded his uh, nearly twice as much as the original. And again, therefore not that useful for uh, for any textual criticism with respect to the Greek original. And the short selections from Leviticus and Song of Songs, they, they think that the uh, Rufinus might be helpful, but again, they quest, they challenge the authors of this work or author of this work challenges Rufinus's handling of Greek. Now, I say they criticize it. They also acknowledge, it's acknowledged, I think, in that same introduction, that Origins Greek is among the most complex, most complicated, most uh, refined and complex and intricate Greek that's out there. So it's not surprising that it's hard to translate him from Greek into Latin. In fact, when it comes to translating him into English, the translators have uh, recognized some similar difficulties. We may encounter that again in some future episodes, but for now, I just wanted to keep this short, focus on the fact that I, uh, my main complaint or, co or concern here is a fewfold. One, one of the issues is the citation of the Philokalia rather than citing to fragments from such and such homily or such and such commentary, I think it would be better to, rather than citing to Philokalia, to cite to the, com uh, the fragment that you have in mind. So that's one issue that I have. I do have that separate issue about the odd citation of 27, uh, I think it was like 6 through 10, or sorry, 10 through 12, 27, 10 through 12 for two lines of Greek. I have a, an issue with that. And then I wanted to, to point out the textual critical aspects, which I think are just interesting, not a complaint for Dr. Wilson at all, but also to point out that it's not always straightforward to rely on Rufinus and his translation when you're trying to go to the core of origins theology. And then I suppose the other final point would be uh, just to be careful about referring to it in terms of being origins philokalia. Just remember that although it's his works and the first part of the philokalia is just uh, his first principles, another part is against Celsius, uh, against Celsus, that it's probably better to cite those parts as against Celsus rather than citing them as the philokalia. And it's better to focus on the original writings by origin to the extent we can. And that's a big, Big, big challenge is a lot of the original works, a lot of the original language works of origin are lost. God willing, in the next episode, we will pl plunge ourselves into a discussion of the next couple of paragraphs of Dr. Wilson's book. This is on page 66. We're going to discuss some material taken from the homilies on Jeremiah. Here's an English translation of that as well as some more discussion of the Philokalia, hence this episode. So you can refer back to this episode without getting into all of the nitty gritty details of this point at the time. Thanks to everyone who watched. I hope uh, this wasn't too long or overwhelming and I look forward to the next time.